Well, I invite you, uh, if you have a copy of the Bible nearby, uh, to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to continue our series, though it was interrupted for a week. We're going to continue our series here uh, on uh, 1 Peter. And we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 today. I'm actually going to read for you in just a moment uh, the first seven verses, but our focus for today is 1 through 6. So go ahead and, and turn to that passage uh, in your Bible or click or scroll or whatever medium you're using. Uh, turn, uh, get, get yourself to 1 Peter chapter 3 and be ready to follow along there. Well, Patrick Henry famously said, give me liberty or give me death. Um, he was speaking to a convention in Virginia, seeking to convince uh, the leaders of that state to join the cause of the American Revolution, to fight against uh, the, the, Brit the British and to regain or, or claim their sort of independence, right, and become a, a new and sovereign nation. And that, that charge, that give me liberty or give me death, death, <laughs> death became a rallying cry uh, for the revolution, right, that they would... Uh, that, that it was not even worth living if they had to remain under the tyranny of British rule, right? That was the, the, the sentiment there. And really that give me liberty or give me death uh, kind of summarizes the attitude of, uh, of sinful human beings like us and maybe even uniquely or particularly Americans uh, about just about anything. We are so committed to and passionate about our personal liberty and our ability to do what we want, to call our own shots, that it's like if we can't chart our own course, if I can't secure my own destiny, then you might as well simply kill me because it's just not worth even living if I can't sort of be my own boss. That's, that is a deeply ingrained um, posture in sinful uh, human hearts. The text that we come to today uh, is a reminder to us of the upside-down values of the kingdom of God, or, or rather, really, the right-side-up values of the kingdom of God, because it's really us in our sin who have gotten it backwards. And the topic in the passage is marriage, the relationship of husbands and wives, and particularly today, Peter is going to exhort wives in how they ought to be subject to their husbands. And when we come to this topic, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that there is tension and that there is this is a battleground all over the place, not just in our culture broadly, but even in the church about what this looks like and what this means and why would the Bible call uh, wives to submit to husbands and, and, uh, and things like that. But so we've gotten things backwards. And ever since the, the, that fateful day in the garden, men and women have been striving for one another. Right against one another, I mean, fighting with each other, trying to domineer, trying to gain the upper hand, who's going to be in control. There have been this, this tension between men and women broadly, uh, and in particular in marriages between husbands and wives, has been uh, a fight forever since Genesis chapter 3, because that was a result of the fall. Uh, and God put enmity in that sense between husband and wife that they would be fighting with one another. And so it shouldn't surprise us that conversations about this topic are fraught with landmines and difficulties. And so people get tense and, and sort of ready to 
fight back or defend whenever they hear uh, teaching or exhortations on this topic. And so um, we should also observe that in the context of our culture's outright rejection of God's created order and design, even what it means that God created human beings as male and female in his image, um, the more that Christians lean into the Bible's teaching and commands to husbands and wives and the, the sort of principle of leadership and submission, the more out of touch and ridiculous we will seem to the world. And honestly, we should expect nothing less than that. As elect exiles, the chosen people of God who are living in a world that does not welcome us and in a social system in which we simply don't fit. That's the reality that we're living in. And so we shouldn't be surprised or caught off guard by the tensions that exist here and the sort of battleground that it has become. But God's word points us to something good and beautiful and that pictures God uh, in the, the, the relationship of a husband and a wife. And so we're going to begin looking at that today. So let me read for you uh, verses 1 through 7. Uh, verses 1 through 6 are really directed toward wives. That's what we're going to focus on today. Verse 7 is directed to husbands. So we'll focus on that next week. Um, but for now, um, uh, I want to give you the context of that, the whole passage before we dig in. So this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In these verses, again, we're focusing on one through six today. In these verses, we see the beauty of glad submission, the beauty of good character, and the beauty of godly examples. Let's take those one at a time. The first two verses point us to the beauty of glad submission. And so the, the, he says, likewise, wives, which points us to the fact that he is going down sort of a list of groups of people. And so wives are simply the next group of people that he is addressing uh, in the broader context of, of this letter. And so back in chapter 2, verse 12, he had exhorted the whole church to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they might glorify God on the day of visitation. 
And so this honorable conduct becomes a sort of umbrella for what he begins to walk through. And then he spoke to um, to Christians as they relate to government and slaves as they were to relate to masters and now to wives as they're to relate to husbands and then the inverse of that husbands to wives in uh, the next verse. And so he's continuing this, uh, this pattern. And, Peter, and interestingly, Peter's pattern in uh, these exhortations is to focus uh, his attention on the less powerful, the less privileged in each of those relationships. So in Christians and government, obviously the Christians were the ones without power or authority. And so he's addressing how they ought to live in submission to uh, the governing authorities. In slaves and masters, obviously the slaves are the ones without privilege and power. And he's addressing how they ought to live in submission to their masters. And now he comes and does the same thing with husbands and wives. And so the, the less powerful, less privileged position, so to speak, within the marriage relationship is the wife. And so he gives sort of the bulk of his instruction to wives. He does address husbands, and it's very important, uh, and we'll get to that. But the bulk of the instruction here, you see six verses for wives uh, and only one verse for husbands because his energy is on equipping Christians in positions of lesser power or, uh, or uh, authority to live faithfully uh, under those uh, circumstances. And further, he emphasizes the beauty and gospel witness of the godly submission on the part of those groups, right? So um, when he, even to those who are not faithful. So when he was speaking to slaves, for example, he said, uh, slaves be subject to your own masters, not only to the good and kind, but also to those who are unjust. And so out of reverence for God, be subject to masters even when they treat you unjustly. And so there was a whole passage there that we looked at last, last time about unjust suffering. And, uh, and here he does the very same thing when he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then he references even those or even some who do not obey the word. And as we've seen in, uh, in Peter, the, the, that phrase, obeying the word, is a synonym for believing the gospel, like for being a Christian. So when he says that th those who do not obey the word might be one, he is speaking of husbands who are not believers. That is, they have not received the gospel of Christ with faith. And so they're not obeying the word in that sense. And so, again, Peter says, as Christians in that less privileged place live out their faith in an honorable way, um, it becomes a sort of evangelistic appeal uh, to the one the, to the people who are in those positions of power or privilege or authority uh, and the, and many of them may be one to Christ and so that those themes continue throughout this this list of uh, as he's addressing these various groups so let's let's dig in a little bit here to verses one and two uh, as we see the beauty of glad submission the first observation I want to make is that Notice what it says and what it doesn't say. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. It does not say, all women, be subject to all men. Okay? The pattern here or, or the exhortation here is narrow in its scope to say that within the context of a covenant marriage, the wife should submit herself to her husband. 
don't submit, she's not to submit herself to someone else's husband. And certainly not all women are to submit themselves to all men in every way or every context, right? So if we take the what's intended here and sort of blow it up uh, and just assume that that is the case in all circumstances, social circumstances, or all relationships, then we're, we're going to get this twisted. And I would think that that's probably a way that that has happened uh, in, in many cases throughout uh, the centuries. Um, you're not to be subject to all men everywhere. Like, don't assume that, say, if there's a gathering of women and, there, and a man walks into the room, well, suddenly he has to uh, call the shots in that room. And all of the women have to just uh, bow to the opinion of that man because, well, all women are supposed to be subject to all men, right? That's, that's not uh, what Peter is suggesting here at all. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, uh, now, to those who are unmarried, obviously everybody is not married, and everybody who is married is not a wife. And so in some ways, these, these exhortations are very sort of limited in their scope. But to those who are unmarried, you are not covenant-bound to any man in this way. So wisdom for you, in your case, may be to follow the leadership and guidance of uh, your parents or your pastors or some other trusted Christian leader. And so there's wisdom in sort of uh, looking to the, the leadership and guidance of, of godly men in your life, but you are not bound in the same way as a wife is to her husband uh, because of that marriage covenant. But for all women, married, unmarried, widowed, divorced, please don't see yourselves as obligated to obey or submit to any and every man. That is That is not what is in view here, and that goes farther than the Bible ever really goes. Um, and also, another observation to make about this is that the, a context of loving relationship and covenant union is assumed in Peter's exhortation for wives to submit to their own husbands. And that's very clear by the inclusion of verse 7, where he speaks to husbands about how they ought to, uh, to lead um, their wives. Um, there, the, the, the context is of love and of covenant and commitment to one another. That's the context in which the leadership and submission principle can be lived out in peace and joy. And so it, we, we need to make sure that we don't divorce verses 1 through 6 from verse 7. Um, if we spend all our time on verse 6, oh, look at all these instructions for wives, and we stop, uh, and don't talk about and give exhortations to here's how husbands are to carry their responsibility uh, to lead. Uh, we are in three errors. Number one, we place women in a dangerously vulnerable position. If we say to every wife, submit to your husband no matter what, and then we don't say anything to that husband, we're potentially placing a woman in a very dangerous situation where that man may lead in sinful or abusive or dangerous ways. And if there's no further uh, instruction than that, and if the best we've got is, well, sorry, wives are supposed to submit to husbands, then we are in error and we've done a disservice to that woman. Secondly, we leave Christian men, and actually unbelieving men too, without the grace of a godly exhortation to loving leadership. We, we miss an opportunity to speak to the hearts of men, of, of husbands. Husbands need to be called up to lead and to 
love and to serve. Men generally need to be called up. And if we say, here's how women are to live in submission, but we say nothing to the men, then we are missing uh, the God-ordained opportunity to call Christian men to rise to the occasion and to that position and to lead carefully, wisely, lovingly. And third, we're just cherry-picking Bible verses, which ones we like and which ones we find too inconvenient. And I'm quite sure that through the years, there have been a number of men and teachers and perhaps even pastors who really like verses one through six and talk a lot about that. And then we'll kind of like out of the side of their mouth, verse seven, yeah, husbands will uh, be understanding. Okay, let's get on with it to the next passage, right? And I'm sure that that has been uh, an error, in, maybe unintentionally, that has been made uh, uh, on a number of occasions. And so we need to be careful to keep these things together. So this message and this exhortation doesn't make total sense without the exhortation on the flip side of the coin in verse 7 for husbands, all right? So the Bible gives us both. Here's how wives are to behave in a marriage relationship, and here is how husbands are to behave in that same relationship. I want you to notice that Peter expects for wives to be subject to their husbands whether or not their husbands are believers. That is remarkable. He says... Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, again, that means even if some are not believers, have not trusted Christ in faith, that even some who don't obey the word may be one without a word, right? And so he says to women, submit, right? Be subject to your husband, even if he's not a believer, and presumably that situation arises when two unbelievers marry, and then one of them, in this case the wife, is converted, comes to faith in Christ, and the husband doesn't or hasn't yet. And so you have a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. It is remarkable that the exhortation that Peter gives is neither for the wife to then leave the marriage, well, since I am saved and you are not, this is no longer a fitting context, and so I need to just leave. Nor is it for the wife to take charge and become the leader in the home. He doesn't say, wives, begin to lead your husband if he doesn't obey the word. In either case, the godly wife is to remain faithful to the covenant of marriage and to honor the leadership of her unbelieving husband, which is a remarkable instruction. And just as a cultural observation, wives were expected in, this, in, in Peter's day to simply adopt the religion of their husband. So even if a woman was raised in a certain tradition, when she married, she was supposed to just take on whatever religious commitments the husband had. That's what they were to do. So this command is actually countercultural in Peter's day to say that women who become married and then come to faith in Christ don't just become whatever religion your, your husband is. Be faithful to Christ. Live out your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and here's how to do that, right? And so he just gives sort of a, a, some encouragement about what that looks like. And so his exhortation to submit to uh, their husbands is for the purpose 
of winning them to Christ. And that itself is a statement about a woman's right before God to be an heir of the grace of life, to use Peter's language from verse 7, right? Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. In the sight of God, a woman who has trusted in Christ for salvation stands before him on her own. She has her own relationship to God, her own faith in Christ, her own standing with him based on what Christ has done and the faith that she has placed into uh, his finished work. And so a wife is to stand before God on her own confession of faith, not on the, by virtue of her husband's faith, even if it doesn't exist. Because even if her husband is not a believer, you continue faithfully following Christ, and here's how to do that. You subject yourself. You live in submission to your husband. And he says there, uh, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by when they see the conduct of their wives, right? And so there's, again, that evangelistic purpose. There may be a, 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 a calling to the husband who doesn't believe when they see the way that their wives are living, he says, with respectful and pure conduct, that might, without words, draw them toward the Lord. And perhaps by God's grace, they would be converted. Respectful and pure conduct on the part of a believing wife may have an evangelistic effect on her unsaved husband. Or you could probably even broaden this to say that uh, a more spiritually mature wife and the way that she carries out her faith and, and lives in this respectful, respectful and pure way might have a, a maturing effect on her maybe less spiritually mature husband. Say the husband is newer to the faith and is not as far along as the wife. Well, the way that the wife lives out her faith might itself be an encouragement to uh, the husband himself to, to grow and uh, to move forward in his relationship. Now, we, so let's talk about what respectful and pure conduct means, right? That's the command uh, or, or the expression there is that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 2, when they see, when the husbands see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, respect here, as we read that in, uh, in our English translation, or the, as the ESV says it, we might be inclined to think that she is showing respect to her husband. But the word respect actually translates a Greek phrase in fear. So a literal translation and probably a better translation might actually be to say uh, that when they see your pure conduct in fear. And in Peter's writings, as we've kind of already seen, fear is never directed toward man. It's always directed toward God. So if the wife is living purely in fear, it's not in fear of her husband. It's out of fear of God. That is the way that, that Peter re repeatedly uses this. When he spoke of uh, Christians uh, being subject to the governing authorities, he said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Then he said, fear God, honor the emperor, right? Don't get those backwards. Said the same things to uh, the same thing to slaves in, in the middle of chapter two, where he says to be subject to your own masters uh, with all fear, not fear of the masters, but fear of God. And then he spoke of them suffering while being mindful of God. 
And so it's fear of God. It's the it's that love of and reverence toward God that leads Christians to gladly and willingly submit themselves to the various structures and authorities that God has placed into their lives. And so while a wife ought to respect her husband, that is also a biblical command. Ephesians 5.33 says, see that the wife respects her husband. Like that is clear. So a wife ought to be respectful toward her husband. But that, that's not what Peter is getting at here. What Peter is saying is that she ought to focus on living a holy life for God's sake in the sight of her husband. So that when he sees that she is living a pure life out of fear of God, he might be one without a word. Tom Schreiner says it this way, the good conduct of wives should stem from their relationship with God. And so a wife ought to focus on her relationship to the Lord and out of reverence for God, therefore live in this pure way and actually submit herself willingly and gladly to the leadership of her husband. And really it's a relationship with God and a trust in God that makes that possible. You can only gladly submit your life to the leadership of your husband if you really love and trust God. Well, actually, that point will be fleshed out a little bit more at the end of these verses. But uh, the relationship with God is the stem from which uh, the, the, the submission of a wife grows. The, the, the godly um, and respectful and pure conduct of a wife comes. So we do need to be careful not to simply take, um, uh, not to understand, you know, leadership and submission in the Bible in exactly the ways that that has been expressed in uh, cultural manifestations, uh, any sort of historical patriarchal culture, or even like 1950s Leave It to Beaver, you know, USA sort of cultures where the wife is barefoot in the kitchen and cooking dinner and the husband comes home from work and expects to kiss on the cheek and the house is to be clean and the kids are to be perfectly well-mannered and behaved and, uh, oh, well, that smells delicious. What's for dinner, honey? That is not the, the biblical picture of leadership and submission uh, in the context of a marriage. It might look like that if the husband and the wife decide that's how that ought to uh, be played out. But th this is not a wife stop being an individual person for the sake of your husband who's doing all the important things. That, that's not the biblical picture. So we just need to be careful uh, not to uh, have a cultural uh, idea in our minds when we think about what the Bible is calling husbands and wives to. And I think that that's probably a lot of what people react against. So, at least some of the, the, the sort of pushback and the defense uh, against uh, the notion of a wife being submissive to her husband um, is really probably against a particular and inevitably distorted cultural manifestation of the roles of, of husbands and wives, rather than precisely God's design for complementarity, as we see revealed in the Bible. So just a word of caution. Now, let's be careful that what we're living out is actually the biblical principles and not just replaying a TV show or some cultural idea that we've seen. And so the first two verses point us to the beauty of glad submission. When a wife, out of reverence for God, willingly lives uh, subject to the leadership of her husband, she is honoring Christ. She is worshiping God. And in fact, the husband may see the beauty of that, of her pure conduct. 
and we're going to get into uh, what that uh, entails a little bit deeper in this next uh, section. So verses 3 and 4 point us to the beauty of good character. The beauty of good character. And Peter simply gives us here a, a negative and a positive. Don't do this. Do this. Do not let your adorning, that is what you sort of put on, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Uh, and so that's the first, that's the negative. Don't let your adorning be external. And I think what we could probably add a word for our own understanding that's like, don't let your adorning be merely external. I don't think he's advocating here uh, nakedness uh, or um, don't use any jewelry or never braid your hair. Like he's not interested in, in proscribing uh, particular fashion styles or how you do your hair or whatever. Like that, that's not the point that Peter is making. Uh, what, what the point that he's making here is, is, is one of emphasis. What, what, how is a woman known? And so I think there's two sort of pitfalls here uh, to this, this external adorning. Uh, the first pitfall would be an obsession with physical appearance. If you are feverishly obsessed over every calorie you take in, over how much time you're spending in the gym, over how new your clothes look, etc., is your makeup done perfectly? Are you attractive to men when you go out in public? If that is where your energy is or your heart is, I think Peter would say to you, you are allowing your adornment to be merely external. That is not the most important thing about you. That is not even the most beautiful thing about you. Even if every hair is perfectly in place and every stitch of clothing is new and trendy and fashionable, that is not the point. Um, that there is an obsession over physical appearance that undercuts true beauty, that really misses what God is after uh, in, in, in what he wants to do in, uh, in a woman's life. And so don't be obsessed with physical appearance is, is one pitfall. The other pitfall um, is, a, is an overemphasis on material wealth, material excess. And I think that's, that's alluded to here in the, the braiding of hair it would have been a, probably a particular hairstyle that in that day and culture would have sort of signaled wealth. Uh, certainly the putting on of gold jewelry in that day, gold was very precious and difficult to find. And only people who had a lot of money were able to have things that were made of gold. And so putting on gold jewelry is showing everybody, look how much money I've got. Look how important I am, right? And so gold jewelry in our day is not necessarily that, uh, you know, that ostentatious of a thing. But there are ways that a woman or a man as well, but obviously we're focusing here on wives, there are ways that a woman can present herself uh, that demonstrates what I really care about is that you know I'm important, that you know I have a lot of money, that you know that I have a, a strong reputation to uphold, right? And so the material excesses um, is seen in sort of the richness of styles and accessories and things like that is another pitfall. Don't be obsessed with your outward physical appearance and, and don't fall into the trap of material excess and trying to emphasize how much you have, right? Or what sort of status in society you have. That is not what God regards as beautiful. And I think by implications, even suggesting that's not necessarily what even husbands necessarily find beautiful. Um, 
And so, again, it's not a prohibition against particular hairstyles or clothing styles or things like that. It's a question of emphasis. What is a woman known for? Is a woman known as a put-together, stylish fashionista, right? Is that who she is? Or is she known for her godliness? Is she known for her kindness? Is she known as a woman who deeply loves God and loves others? That's the the question. That's the thing that is in view here. So when he says, don't let your adorning be external, he's saying, don't get so focused on all these secondary things that really don't matter in the end. How much money you have, how pretty you are by your sort of culture standards, that doesn't matter. That doesn't have any eternal value whatsoever. What does have eternal value is what comes in the next statement and the positive of this. Don't let your adorning be external, verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The hidden person of the heart. Peter loves the word imperishable. All over the place in this letter already, he's talked about things that will never fade, right? He says that in chapter 2 that we were born again by the imperishable seed of the word of God. That means the life we've been given by Christ never dies, never ends. We have eternal life because we've been born again with an imperishable seed. Back in chapter 1, he spoke of the inheritance that we have that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. We have a hope that is awaiting us that will never fade, will never die. And so when he says here that the hidden person of the heart has an imperishable beauty, he is saying this is the kind of beauty that will never die, that will never fade. And if you think about those who are obsessed with their physical appearance, trying to make sure they keep their body fit and trim by going to the gym all the time or wearing the best clothes. How's that going to work out for you 50 years from now? That beauty fades. Clothes get old. Bodies change, right? What you think of as beautiful and perfect right now will not last. But Peter says, when the beauty comes from the hidden person of the heart, and is a a gentle and quiet spirit, that is a beauty that never fades. It never fades. Whose perspective is important here? Who is he talking about where he says the hidden person of the heart? So by whose standard are we gauging beauty here? Well, guess what? The heart is hidden to all except one, and that's God. Only God has a front row seat to what's in your heart and what he's growing there and what you really cherish and value and love, what you prioritize. Only God really sees that. And so when he says uh, that your adorning should be the hidden person of the heart, what he's saying is think more about what God thinks of you than about what others think of you. Don't worry so much about what your society thinks, about what other church members think, about even what your husband thinks. Like, don't feverishly try to figure out how to look good for your husband. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is focus on what God regards as beautiful 
And he makes that even more plain with that last phrase in verse 4 where he says, which in God's sight is very precious. Precious, not in the sense of cute. Oh, it's so precious. Precious as in rare, costly, right? Valuable. In God's sight, a, a woman's character, when it exhibits this gentle and quiet spirit, is beautiful. And it is an imperishable kind of beauty. It is God's endorsement that Peter is invoking here as motivation for Christian wives to pursue real beauty, right? The inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious in God's sight. Let your adorning be this gentle and quiet spirit. What, what does that mean? What does that look like? When I think of somebody who's, who has a gentle and quiet spirit, I, I think of somebody who's, who's peaceful because she trusts God, right? She knows and trusts in God, and so she's at peace. She's not frantic. She's not panicking. She trusts God. I think of a woman who's not brash or argumentative, but, but kind. Her words are, are gentle, seasoned with, with grace. There's so many ways that, uh, that, that a woman can display uh, this kind of beauty that emphasizes her relationship with God and, and, and pours forth the fruit of the Spirit, right? There are some things that are, you know, more emphasized for men and some characteristics that are more emphasized for women. But the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, um, that's for every Christian. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When the fruit of God's Spirit at work in a woman's heart and life is what shows forth in relationships, in conversations, in her demeanor, in the way that she treats others, the way that she respects and follows her husband. When that is the spirit that a woman displays, it is a true and imperishable beauty. And so women, wives, focus on the beauty of good character as you follow the Lord. And finally, we see in verses 5 and 6, the beauty of godly examples. This is so important. I really think it's, it's, uh, it's wise of Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit here, and gracious of God to point us to this. We need people who embody these things to be able to pattern ourselves after, right? To, to emulate. Look at uh, verses 5 and 6. He says there, for, in other words, like kind of grounding his argument, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, right? So in other words, I'm not calling you to something new. When I say adorn yourself with this quiet uh, and gentle spirit and this hidden person of the heart by submitting to your husband and living in this pure way out of fear of God, he's saying, I'm not calling you to something novel. This is how godly women from the beginning have lived. And so uh, this is how they used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. Look back, right? Look into God's word. What, what do we see of, of women in the scriptures that demonstrate this? Look into your own life. Look around you, right? Where do you, who do you see that exhibits these characteristics? What woman, what wife do you see uh, that challenges you? That's the way I want to be, right? I, I, want, I want to grow into that kind of character. Um, have those people in your mind. Somebody might be coming to your mind even right now. Praise God for them. Thank God that, that that woman is in your life. And then 
think about how you might um, build on that and, and emulate their pattern. Just as Paul said, as, as I imitate Christ, you imitate me, right? Uh, and so this is not saying be a carbon copy of somebody else, but look to their example and learn from it and be inspired by it. And then Peter gives the particular example of Sarah, Abraham's wife, right? This is how, this is verse six, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, right? And he calls on Sarah here um, because she gives this example of sort of uh, following the leadership of her husband and not because Abraham was like always making the best choices and batting a thousand in every direction that he tried to go, right? Sometimes Abraham was goofy, Sometimes Abraham did dumb things like, hey, I'm kind of afraid of this king, so why don't you pretend that you're my sister? And we'll see how that goes, right? Maybe we'll kind of slip under the radar here. Uh, So Abraham isn't exactly a perfect leader, right? Sometimes Abraham makes wrong choices. But Sarah trusts God, and so she follows the leadership of her husband. And I think that is why Peter sort of uh, uh, invokes her here as an example. Um. A wife's submission to her husband is actually an expression of her hope in God. See that phrase there where Peter speaks of the the examples in verse 5? This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Well, why did they adorn themselves? By submitting to their husbands? Because they hoped in God. Their trust ultimately wasn't in their husband. Their trust was in God. She is trusting God to take care of her through the leadership uh, and sacrifice and provision of her husband, instead of taking charge herself, instead of doing everything that she possibly can to be in control. She is yielding control, ultimately to God, by following the leadership of her husband. And so wifely submission is an act of worship. That's why Sarah and these other women, the holy women uh, of old, that's why they submitted themselves to their husband was because they were worshiping God. And that's the legacy of Sarah, right? Yeah, Sarah had her bad moments too, like when she laughed when when God told them that she was going to have a child. But her legacy, the lasting legacy, and how she goes down in Hebrews chapter 11 is a woman who trusted God. And that is why she's able to follow the leadership of her husband. So when a wife willingly follows the leadership of her husband, she is saying to God, I trust you. I trust you to take care of me, to watch out for me, to provide for my needs, rather than trying to force something to happen or trying to manipulate my husband into getting my way or trying to gain control of a situation. No, I'm, I'm not going to take care of myself. How many times have you heard that? I don't need a man. I can take care of myself. Well, a woman who recognizes, maybe I don't need a man to take care of me, so to speak, but I do need God to take care of me. And the way that he has called me as a Christian wife to live with my husband is by submitting to his leadership. And so submitting to the leadership of your husband is an act of worship to God. It's saying, I trust you. I know you're going to take care of me. And submission here is expressed in terms of obedience You might kind of uh, bristle a little at Peter saying that Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him a Lord. Like, okay, great. So now I have to start calling my husband 
master or boss or lord or something like that and just obey every little whim that he has. Uh, that sounds great. Uh, yeah, that's, that's not what Peter's saying here. I don't think that's necessarily how Sarah lived either. I think here obedience is just a synonym for, uh, for submission, right? To be subject to your husband. Uh, again, it doesn't mean lose your individuality and just adopt all of his opinions or whatever. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying to live uh, under the God-given authority of your husband to lead in your relationship and in your home. And so... Um, and I think that calling him Lord was just a cultural expression of respect. That is how she demonstrated to Abraham that she did respect him by calling him Lord. Now, I think that would be a little weird in our day. Like, I have not yet asked Lindsay to start calling me Lord. Uh, you can hear her laughing. I think that's how well that would go if I asked her to call me Lord. Um, probably not. But there are, uh, there are ways for a wife to express that she respects her husband uh, and intends uh, to follow his, his leadership. And I think that's what he's getting at by citing Sarah here as an example. And he says, you, looking now at Christian wives, you are her children. Like you follow in her path if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And I think doing good there is just an echo of everything he's been saying throughout chapter two and now into this passage. It, it's, the, it's the hidden person of the heart and the imperishable imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. It's the keeping your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, um, all of that, that they might see your good deeds and glorify God. So, so doing good uh, is a priority of a Christian woman. And this, la this last phrase, this, if you do not fear anything that is frightening, again, I think points to the reality of a Christian woman's trust in God. And if you think about uh, what it meant for, uh, for Sarah, especially in, in that day, uh, she would have been in a very vulnerable position, right? She didn't have the, the, the social uh, ability uh, or permission even really to like sort of make her own way, you know? Uh, and so she was in a very vulnerable position to depend on her husband for her protection and her well-being. And that itself is an act of faith, not only in her husband, but ultimately in God that her needs would be met, not by her own productivity or ingenuity, but by her honoring God's design for husbands and wives by living in submission to him. What fears might a Christian woman have? Just ask you that. What fears come to, to your mind when you think about uh, living um, with a husband? If you're married now, um, think about life with your current husband. If you're uh, unmarried, you may be married in the future. Um, think about the kinds of things you might be afraid of. What, what sort of fears might, uh, might there be? Um, a fear of just a lack of control. If I follow my husband's leadership, that means I don't make all the decisions. That means I don't uh, you know, get to have my way all the time, right? That means I'm gonna have to yield even on some things that I think are, are right or true. Um, to follow his example, uh, to follow his leadership. Maybe your fears are things like he might leave, right? My husband might leave or my husband might die. Those are, those are real fears. Um, what if you're married to an, un, an unbelieving husband and you're really hoping and praying that he'll come to know the Lord? What if he never does? What if he never does come to know the Lord? Those are real fears. And he's saying here that if you live in such a way out of your reverence for God and your trust in God that you're willing to be subject to your own husband, 
you're saying to God, I trust you to take care of me even when there's stuff that I can be really scared about. And I'll remind you again of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter, chapter 6 where he says uh, to, to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and then all these other things will be added. Those things being what do we eat? What do we wear? You know, what do we drive? Where do we live? What am I going to do for a job? What are we going to do now that we're stuck in our house and we're running out of toilet paper, right? All the things that we're afraid of. God says, trust me, seek me, follow me. I'll take care of all the rest. And so Christian women are still called to that same act of faith, to follow your husband's leadership and trust that God will watch out for you. And so that's, that's what he exhorts uh, Christian wives here to do. Submit, subject, be subject to your own husbands. And so we see the beauty of glad submission and the beauty of good character and the beauty of godly examples that might encourage and inspire uh, and equip uh, Christian women to live in these ways. And we, we have to be, we just have to guard against uh, women, just a word to you especially here. You, you have to guard against regarding submission as belittling or degrading in some way. The fact that God calls wives to submit to leadership uh, of their husbands in their home. We have, we have to be careful not to regard that as some uh, statement about your value as a person uh, or the way that, uh, that God sees you or um, how much uh, you can contribute to the kingdom, right? Uh, as though your assignment is in God's design is a punishment or a rendering of a lesser value. That's not the case at all. You have to be careful to, to guard against that and, to, and, and even pray, ask God to help you to see the beauty of this, um, the beauty of, of his design and, and what that means. After all, Christ himself lived a life of glad submission. Christ himself, the very eternal son of God, by whom and for whom all things were created and who holds all things together, he submitted himself to the will of his father. He yielded his privileges, his rights, his status, his reputation, and even his own will to the will of his father, even to the point of death. When Jesus went to the cross, it was the greatest act of submission that there ever was. And not merely that he subjected himself to unjust suffering or to the torture of wicked Roman soldiers and the cries of the Jewish leaders who wanted him gone. No, ultimately he subjected himself to the wise and redemptive purpose of God the Father to, to save a people for himself through that very act of sacrifice. It was through Christ's willing submission. It was through Christ's act of self-sacrifice that we have life. Because he died on the cross in our place. He took our sins upon himself. The punishment that was due to us fell upon him by God's incredible grace. May we look to him. Let's trust him um, and follow his example. And there are ways that, that, that husbands are to call, uh, to, to look to Christ as their example as well. And again, uh, it's not husbands, you get exactly what you want and do your way, have your way all the time, and wives just are along for the ride. Um, we'll get to verse 7 next week, and that has some strong exhortations. 
uh, for husbands and how we are to lead uh, in, in our marriages and in our homes. And so if you're thinking, uh, if you're listening right now, husbands, and you're thinking, all right, man, I got an easy uh, free ticket here, an easy ride, um, just wait, all right? Uh, your, yours is coming. Um, so you'll have some strong exhortations uh, to think through as well. Uh, but let's look to Jesus as our example uh, and let's find in the atonement that he purchased for us the ability to live out the various assignments that he's given us. And for Christian wives, the assignment is, at least in part, if you're married, be subject to your own husband and focus on your character and growth in godliness. So a few things just to think about in terms of application, about what the ways, things, steps that we can take or things we ought to, to do in response to this. Uh, husbands, I know you're not directly named in verses 1 through 6, but you're implied uh, and uh, your instructions are coming in verse 7. Husbands, current husbands and future husbands, um, let's look at how we can grow in love and leadership. Let's be uh, asking God what that looks like. Those who are in positions of leadership and authority are held to very high standards and are held accountable for the way that they lead. So let's, uh, let's, let's grow, seek to grow in love and leadership. Wives, pursue joyful submission to your husbands for God's sake. Remember, it's out of reverence for God that you uh, are to carry out the, the assignment that he's given you. See your submission to your husband as an expression of your worship to God. That's the way that uh, I think Peter would exhort you here. Let me say there's nuances, um, exceptions, there's situations that require great care and wisdom. Um, I, I don't want to too broadly apply a biblical principle and uh, if you find yourself in a situation that doesn't really match or um, where there's just particular uh, considerations that need to be made, um, don't wrestle here with with guilt and, uh, and shame about uh, how to carry this out. Women, if you're married, let me just say this, if you are married to a husband whose leadership is sinful, abusive, or in other ways uh, difficult to follow, please reach out uh, to me or to another trusted Christian friend or leader um, and let us know um, what's going on and how we can help you. Um, we cannot just blindly say, oh, sorry, you have to subject yourself to your husband no matter what in all cases, right? So there, there are, I just want to say that there's, there's room for nuance and situations that need extra sort of care and wisdom. Uh, and so let's, uh, let, let's be sure that we're seeking that out. If you're in a situation like that, uh, seek that out. Um, so let me just wrap this up by saying, um, willingly submitting our lives to the authority and leadership of another is an act of self-sacrifice that cuts against many of our deeply ingrained instincts of self-determination and self-preservation, right? That Patrick Henry uh, motto, give me liberty or give me death, uh, that still rings loud and clear in most of our ears and, and our hearts. And so it may be that marriage to some of you sounds a good bit like death. Um, especially if you're um, a woman who is married or is thinking to be married and you think of this, this assignment of being subject to your husband and you think of that as death because you're giving up on, on something of yourself. Um, let me uh, encourage you by quoting a song by Andrew Peterson. He says, I do 
are the two most famous last words, the beginning of the end. But to lose your life for another, I've heard, is a good place to begin. Let me pray.